This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello, everybody. This is another one of our conversations with our PhD in palliative care program. My name is Connie Dolan, and I'm one of the faculty, and I'm joined here by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the um, really the the mind behind this whole program and has gotten everybody started. And we are joined today by Dr. Matthew Gonzalez, who is the Chief Medical Officer at the Institute for Human Caring, although I know Matt um, from the Cambia Sojourn Scholars Leadership Group. And um, I think that this is why it's really interesting for you as students to be sort of thinking about how people are entering into palliative care. So Matt is a fellowship trained board certified palliative medicine physician. Um, as I said, he is a 2017 Cambia Health Foundation Sojourn Scholarship Leadership Program awardee. Um, and he's part of the Catholic Health Association's Tomorrow's Leaders leaders recipients. So that gives you a sense that we have somebody who's formed um, in, in a really interesting way for palliative care because his undergraduate degree was in human biology at Stanford and he actually was a software engineer and helped develop public databases that helped clinicians tailor treatment for individuals with HIV. So that's what really predated his career in medicine per se. Um, and he attended the Keck uh, University of Southern California School of Medicine and then completed his uh, education at University of California at San Francisco. So Matt, welcome today. And we're so excited to kind of hear your view from technology because I think it's um, you know a lens that we don't think about as much in palliative care. So. Let's have you kind of start off and give us more of an introduction because I know I just offered a really small snippet of where you are. Thanks, Connie. Um, honestly, it's so exciting to be here and to be talking with you and everybody else that's listening to this. I um, think exercises like this are so important to our future as a field, to being able to reflect a little bit on you know, where we've been, where we are now and, and the future, all of that feels like a really important pause moment in our society. Um, my, my past uh, and a little bit about what I do now, I think, um, as you mentioned, uh, it, I took a little bit of a winding road to get here is what I would say. Uh, I think many people find that when they reflect back on their careers, there's a sense of serendipity and a sense of like uh, a bit of a wandering that when you're younger, it almost feels like, oh, I need to get things right. And um, my sense is, is that life often works out. Um, my initial story, Connie, really began when I was very young. Um, and I, I had an uncle who died of HIV AIDS in the early 90s. Um, and that experience really made me realize that there was um, something within me that wanted to change his experience of illness and death. And 
like many people in palliative care, there's a sort of fundamental early experience around somebody that they love. This is, you know, my favorite uncle with that I can like picture playing Monopoly with like when I was young that I can picture like interacting with so much um, and to watch him go through a really painful, awful suffering and death, you know, inspired me to try to figure out how to change his experience. Um, but I, I think unlike most people in palliative care, my first stab at trying to figure out how to change that was not necessarily through medicine. I really took a focus on HIV itself and on computers in the sort of use of computer technology to be able to guide um, treatment decisions in HIV. And, you know, I, I went to undergrad in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, and it was pretty hard not to get a lot of computer science um, coming out, out of there back then. Um, and what I fell into was really deciding and looking at trying to fight HIV or fight his experience, really, um, by helping to craft a computer program to analyze the viral dynamics evolution and mutation patterns for HIV to then say, okay, this is the genetic changes that we see in an HIV genotype in your particular blood. Um, and that corresponds to interpreting how and what um, drug therapies you might likely respond to. Um, it, was, it was really fun and exciting. And um, I felt like I was making a difference in terms of fighting his experience but what I realized was that um, I wanted to have more impact and I could see the power of using computers in this space to be able to predict, for instance, what a patient would or wouldn't respond to, but I felt like I needed more training to really understand the clinical implications. And so that's honestly when I went to med school and I thought, oh, you know, I'm gonna do infectious diseases. And then I went through this other space of, um, trying to uh, apply what I learned from viral dynamics to circulating cancer cells. And for a long time, I thought I would do oncology. Um, and honestly, by chance, when I was at UCSF doing my first year internship um, in internal medicine, I submitted a list of requests for my one month elective. And the one month elective was uh, you know, any could be anything, but I put down the four choices of oncology electives because I was like, I want to be an oncologist. And then I put down this fifth thing of palliative care, which truthfully was something I'd never heard about. Um, and that wasn't that long ago, but it was remarkable. I had no idea what palliative care was, um, but it, I had to put in a fifth choice, so I put it in. Um, of course, that's what I got assigned to. <laughs> I was pretty angry at the time. I remember the program um, person's name who did all the assignments, her name was Joni. And I remember being like, Joni, how did you assign me to something I don't know? Um, but the truth is, is that it was life-changing for me, right? It, it um, I realized in the moments, in the weeks that I spent with palliative care there, uh, and I spent some time with some really great clinicians, you know, social workers, chaplains who had been in for 40 years, teaching me some really amazing things, some amazing doctors that trained me, um, you know, folks like BJ Miller and Wendy Anderson. And what they taught me really at this deeper level was that, that healing is possible even when cure isn't. Um, and for me, 
that resonated at a much deeper level with me than trying to create a computer program to be able to impact something that had happened to my uncle. And when I really reflected back on that experience, um, you know, it was this sense of, of, of not being able to attune to his basic needs, to be able to see who, for who he was and talk with him about his hopes and fears and worries and have really good quality symptom management. And those were the things that I found way more inspiring. And so I journeyed into this field of palliative care, um, thinking truthfully at the time that I was gonna have to abandon technology, um, thinking that tech you know, was kind of outside here. And I, I early on kind of described them as two different parts of my brain, right? The technical part of my brain that likes coding um, and the sort of more fuzzy side of my brain that really likes trying to dig into people's emotions and trying to understand what motivates them and what's, what's important to them. Um, I would say the last six years though, working at something called the Institute for Human Caring in this role as the chief medical information officer, I've found a way to really blend these um, parts of my brain into sort of a palliative technology or palliative way of thinking about the world, recognizing that you know our lives are not becoming less technologic. <laughs> the, the amount of technology that we all interface with on a daily basis is increasing exponentially over the last number of years. You know, you watch TV shows from like the early 2000s and you uh, see that no one was really carrying a cell phone and now we all have computers in our pockets and on our wrists and everywhere. And so I have really tried to fundamentally frame the idea that palliative care needs to walk hand in hand with technology and they're actually not sort of different parts of my brain now. They're trying to use different skill sets to really apply and to be able to advance the field, recognizing that in order for us to really achieve what we wanna do to be able to get the best pos possible outcomes for patients and families, we have to figure out how to use technology well and responsibly in that. So that's my day job and super fun. Well, you know, it's funny because as you're talking, I'm sitting listening, you're trying to make this thing between clinical and tech, which is exactly what we've been trying to do about the mind body, right? Yes. And so much. you're trying to do that, which is kind of interesting. And I think the other part is that, um, and, and, and I'm just going to jump in of like saying, we're at this really interesting venture right now, right? We have, we're still in the pandemic for all mm. intents and purposes mm. for whatever safety changes happen on a daily basis. Um, and I think for palliative care, this is a moment, right? Because we, I would venture to say from what I hear and I'm a practicing clinician still, it's been challenging for people to try to figure out this whole part of empathy and compassion when we've had to use telehealth. And yeah. I'd be kind of curious because in my own perspective, I am of two thoughts of this. I think it's been a good learning experience for us because we've had to teach others. Mm -hmm. I think it's also been a good part for us because if you think about health equity and disparity, it kind of levels the field a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel that we have to kind of embrace this rather than push it away. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, like where you're at with that. Uh, you know, it's such a good question. And I think, I think we're struggling with it in our personal lives as well as our professional lives, right? Um, I, this weekend just got back from seeing my nephews for the very first time in 14 months. And um, 
oh my gosh, like such overwhelming joy um, in a way that I don't get through FaceTime, right? Like a hug is like so much more meaningful and powerful in that sense. Um, I think partially because we've been built that way. Um, but I agree with you that, uh, you know, telepalliative care, telepalliation, telehealth in the palliative care space, whatever you want to brand it or call it, is here to stay. And um, I would say I have found it to be really powerful and impactful, um, particularly for those moments where um, folks have been kind of disconnected in the past, right? Like um, one of these classic palliative care vignettes, right, is that you are working through and talking through goals of care with a patient or family. And um, then the sister or the daughter from New York, because I live in California, right? Uh, we, it's always from New York, shows up and they haven't been there. They haven't been a part of any of the discussions. And they're like, wait, what's going on? Like, we need to start all over from scratch. And what I think we're learning is, is that we can really use technology to be able to bring those people and invite them into patient rooms or to invite them into the space to participate and get their questions answered early um, and engage in those conversations at a deeper level where, you know, two years ago, we might have called you once and put you on the phone, but you know, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. A video is probably worth a thousand pictures. Like there's so much richness in seeing and interacting that it's not perfect, but I'm hopeful that we learn to engage, um, engage with this technology in a way that still inspires some empathy for, for people. Well, and I think, you know, it's an interesting part because I think, you know, you're, you're, you are talking about this, this in, in, uh, in, internet part or intertwining yeah. and um i think that the issue is that it's not a skill set we've learned well right so yeah. you know i'll say in my own practice one of the things that i did last year you know with the elnec project was to create these communication vignettes mm. and when i created them it was not only doing it but was helping people think about it because it's such a new skill and and i think you know there's a difference between different disciplines you know physicians are at one level nurses are at another and this is when i think sometimes people get nervous about the community, the, what they're saying, if it's within the scope of practice, right? But you know, all the rules went out the window. Um, but I think it's it is this whole part, and and if it's here to stay, then how do we teach it? Um, and then the flip side of how do we have people feel safe about learning it? Because as you know, it's a very different. Like you know, we're talking with you right now. We're recording it we could have a family member or somebody record it and use it at will and distort, right? So there's a whole bunch of other things within that. Yeah, I think it's really, um, I think the education pieces you're landing on is really important. Um, it's not a skill set that we have taught and it's probably so it should be something that we think about and teach. Um, I imagine that it's gonna get easier uh, as time goes along, like our generation, I think may struggle with it a little bit more. Um, young kids who are on FaceTime all the time now, uh, they're probably gonna find easier ways to communicate in this way. Or I think about um, using technologic solutions that may feel a little bit uh, foreign to us. So for instance, I've always been fascinated with the idea that, that um, 
teenagers like to text more often. And one wonders um, for grief support groups if in-person grief support is really the right way to engage, for instance, a teenager, or maybe it's actually that they're more likely to engage with a text-based medium where they can interact with somebody in a way that feels very familiar to them. So I think it's a little bit about our conditioning and the way that we think about these things. I would say also that, um, you know, you brought up the idea of rec recording family meetings. Um, and I've actually been thinking about that, not just in the Zoom sense, but in a creative sense of using some of these natural language um, tools like Nuance and the Microsoft suite of projects to actually think about having palliative care clinicians engage proactively in recording our own meetings for patients and families um, as a historical record. I think that we are a little bit worried about it, right? Because it's like, oh, something, they could use that in some way. Um, I've seen some really interesting technological packages, for instance, that you can now record your visit with your doctor or your nurse or whoever it is. And um, it, it knows the difference between my voice and your voice. And it's able to um, give you a line by line sentence of what was said, right? Oh, you're coming in for your visit for cardiology today. We need to talk about your blood pressure, whatever it is, right? It also, in addition to that, is able to identify, for instance, things like, um, I wanna get a chest X-ray for you, or I wanna start you on a buterol. And it's able to identify those individual like medical interventions and steps, which then provide patients and families links to high quality information about what a buterol might be, or what does a chest X-ray entail? Now, I'm not saying that like those are the most valuable links in the palliative care setting, but it is technology that's being used in other types of doctor's visits um, or you know, just healthcare visits in general. And I wonder what that looks like for these highly important family meetings where you know, sometimes you say one or two words and that's about all people remember and can engage with. And so I think about how we use technologies in these ways to record family meetings to really help patients to be able to hear these pieces back later or read the text description of them so that we're all on the same page and that we can start working from the same sort of blueprint of, of how we move forward. It's something I haven't done yet, but I'm really fascinated in trying, figuring out how we try. Well, I, in my mind, it's taking one step forward of like, you know, when we give people handwritten things afterward, yeah. right? And I think, then I'll let you go in a second. But the other thing I was just going to say, when you were talking about a younger generation, I mean, that is a paradox, right? Because when we're trying to teach, and this may be in nursing, not medicine, but when we have young adults right now who are in nursing school in their early 20s, communication skills, this face-to-face -face is not their skill set, exactly from what you're saying. They're so used to Instagramming, uh, texting. I'm trying to think of what the newest platform is, Snapchat, although that's going out of style, you know, but they're so used to that, that they can't do the in-person. So it may be that it evolves that way just because of that. So just interesting in that form. Lynn, you wanted to jump in? So can technology be an impediment though? I mean, I hear time and again from patients um, my provider is on the computer the whole time. And I hear from hospice nurses, I feel like I can't be upfront and personal with the patient because I've got to be typing on the computer the whole time or I wait till I get home and then I'm doing notes for four more hours. So yeah. can you do both? Can you be upfront and personal and be technologically savvy? I, I think so. Um, I think we, uh, to your point, Lynn, I, th I don't think we've hit the right notes on this yet. Um, 
you know, I don't know exactly what the great comparison is, but um, I feel like we're in the evolution of technology in this space. Um, you know, for instance, VCRs were great, but um, they had a lot left to be desired, right? You had to like set your you set your timer and record the program, and now we just stream them. I think I think we're sort of in the VCR stage, I guess, of EHRs and the the way that that works. It, it it's a little better than watching it live, um, but not. We haven't realized the the true power of it, and I think that part of that is is that what we in our field I think has tried to do is think about replicating what we did in a paper-based world in a digital world. And that to me is the wrong, wrong, wrong solution, right? We shouldn't just take something analog and put it into a digital space. We've done a lot with notes, right? The idea that like, well, what I was writing down, I now have to transcribe into my digital note and type out the reality is, is if we're storing these all in discrete data fields or we use, for instance, um, speech to text technolo technology, um, that we could be able to make this a lot easier for, for clinicians. Uh, I personally hate the like two hours or three hours at the end of every day, right, where you're just like charting and typing things. Like, I think that's going to go away within the next five to 10 years, and that seems to be a long time frame. But you can imagine that it'd be pretty easy for you guys to get a transcript of what was said here. Um, and I think think and expect that EHRs will, will get to that solution. I think that medicine and palliative care and hospice truthfully has a much larger technical debt than other spaces. And that's something that we're gonna have to pay into to be able to correct this so that we can move from this VCR stage, right? Or um, VHS stage up to like current technologies where we're actually able to get information all the time. And that that's an expectation that our patients and families have and we need to get there. So two questions, one for the students who are watching the VHS and the VCR tapes that people had to come in, you might not even know what they are. Um, and so they're so gone. But um, if you're younger, they, you, they weren't around because you might have had DVDs. But I, I, I'm really intrigued by this part about you saying a technological debt. Tell me mm. tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, my experience of this so far is that it's really in vogue in our field to complain about the electronic health record, um, the EMR. Like it's really easy to get anyone passionate at any one of our meetings, right? By by saying the EHR is broken. It's like a rallying cry for us. Um, <laughs> and that's true. There are some things that are really broken by it, um, but I don't think we, that we have spent the time thinking about how to make it work for us, uh, which is a lot of what I spend my time trying to think about, trying to use everyday practical tools that are in other spaces and apply them to, to our space. Um, and I think that's partially because we spent a lot of time thinking about the highly relational nature of our field, right? The importance of teaching communication, the importance of good quality symptom management, the importance of teaching people to even, you know, lean forward and use good body language. And all of that is one part of people's brain, but I think it's we need to also start emphasizing that folks as they're exploring their future career path in this way is that they think about the ways to integrate technology 
into educational spaces, but also into the EHR. I mean, I think about the use of, for instance, in, in educational spaces around augmented reality or virtual reality in those spaces, but the EHR isn't sort of the limit of our technical debt. We certainly need to focus on it because there's a lot that we can do. I'll just talk about one project that we, we've been doing um, within our group, which we actually drew inspiration from outside of healthcare and that revolves around the concept of pulse forms. And you know, there's these complicated forms that are really truthfully pretty ugly. They're black and white and they're all state-based and they all kind of have similar fields, right? What's your first name? What's your last name? What's your medical record number? What is the CPR status of this individual? What are their desired sort of other interventions that are on there? Do they want a feeding tube or not? And, um, you know, it was tempting when we were trying to build a solution and take these pulse forms into our electronic health record to just uh, put in a static PDF and have people type all those things out. That to me would have been the wrong solution because it's an example of just taking something analog and making it digital. And so what we actually were inspired to do as we were looking at these forms is one of our analysts said, you know, this is really striking. These forms remind me of tax forms. Um, they remind me of state banks tax forms, right? Like everybody's got to put in their gross income. Everybody's got to put in the money that they paid. Everybody's got to put in their name. And so we actually looked to TurboTax as an idea, as a model, right? To be able to say, well, TurboTax is actually taken off as a product. They don't show you the actual forms. They don't put your you know, 1040 form in front of you. They ask you, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Like, can I go and grab some information somewhere about what your income level is? Do you have any dependents? And so that's actually what we did with our Pulse forms because we have Pulse in six different states, right? So, because we're a large multi-state health system. And so I now have this program that runs within our Epic build that we partnered with our IS colleagues to build. And it just asks you what it needs to know, right? What's your CPR status? What is um, your other desired level of medical care wishes? You know, for instance, Idaho has a question about antibiotics on there. No other state forms have antibiotics. So we don't ask you about antibiotics if, unless you're in Idaho because we don't need to know that information. And so at the end, we take in only the information we need, layer it onto a PDF and then give you a copy to be able to take home. And to me, that's the type of design that we should be doing and thinking about instead of, for instance, doing things manually and accepting that and keeping track of things, quality metrics and the like using Excel forms, which um, I would love to someday get rid of. I think success in this space uh, would be that in five to 10 years from now, I would be able to stand up at a national palliative care meeting and be like, the EHR is broken. And everyone's like, not really. Like, what are you talking about? It works for us. It doesn't work against us. Wow. Those are, I mean, those are all such interesting things for us to think about, right? Because it is, I think you're talking about the crossroads and I think um, it also is about comfort, right? Like, you know, dictating was one skill set, handwriting was another. Yeah trying to figure out Epic. And I mean, I think of my own self with technology is, you know, when we went to Epic, um, I don't find it uh, user friendly for me. <laughs> it, and 
you know, one of the biggest things was our person said to me, you know, Connie, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. You will be competent at this, but you don't have the time and space to learn it. So you just have to accept that. Now, being a palliative care person, I leapt up and gave her a big hug and said, thank <laughs> you for giving me permission to be competent, right? Because yeah. there wasn't going to be any other way. So I think what you're talking about is this whole movement forward. And, and I do like this part about not just recreating you know, the analog and the digital. But in that space, like, so what do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of what do you see for palliative care, particularly in technology? I mean, you've mentioned some, but you might see others that you are- Yeah, yeah. I think the EHR space, um, to take that component first and then moving on to other more creative, interesting ones. So I think the EHRs are getting better. They recognize the need to be able to innovate on in these levels and spaces, at least for palliative care. The hospice components of the major EHR vendors are still, still have a ways to go. Um, I think one of the things that I, I would challenge people to do is to work with their local IS folks to be able to create, for instance, dynamic documentation. Um, and what, what I mean by that, hmm? yeah, tell us what yeah, that yeah, yeah. What I mean by that is that um, we have created pretty static documentation that pulls in, for instance, oh, it pulls in a medication list or it pulls in your family history. Um, but actually, because it's a computer system, right, it can evaluate rules uh, that make, can make our lives easier. So for instance, one of the things that I often think about in the inpatient setting is, um, has the patient had a bowel movement in the last two days? Well, I can, of course, in a non-user-friendly way, uh, go to whatever it is, like the flow sheet row, and then scroll over a bunch of times to find the nursing documentation for, is there a bowel movement? But truthfully, it's about 20 minutes of programming work for an analyst to be able to create a rule in documentation that goes and looks at that particular place on the chart. And when I launch my note, it will either say one of two things. It'll say the patient has had a bowel movement in the last 48 hours, or it will say there's no EHR documentation of a bowel movement within the last 48 hours. Does the patient report one, yes or no? And to me, that's like making the note work for you because now I'm just like launching my note and it's evaluating a bunch of things. Does this person have an advanced directive? Does it have a, do they have a pulse form? What are the preferences on that? And it can give you prompts depending on what you want it to or uh, how you configure it. So that, that when you launch your note, it's already giving you a lot of guidance, right? And it's not just our notes. I think about this in primary care notes. It should tell you when someone's last advanced care planning conversation is and prompt you to do one if it hasn't been done in whatever amount of time frame. That's all really easy and configurable. I think that one of the things that we need to do better with in our field is interacting with the technical folks that can build those things. Because if you really build smart dynamic documentation, you're not spending four hours at the end of the day charting because the computer is doing so much of that work for you. We just don't spend the time doing that. I think once that's done, Connie, then we can get to some really fun creative things, right? It's not like the EHR is broken or I don't know how to measure how many consults we're doing automatically or look at quality measures. Those are all really important, but I think clinicians want to get creative in this space. I think we want to be able to explore what's out there. Um, you know, I think about, uh, for instance, augmented reality uh, communication-based training and how... Um, 
we've seen these like phones that do augmented reality now where you can actually have like an avatar looking like they're standing in your room with you um, to be able to make it easier to interact with a um, AI-based simulation of communication-based training so that we can train our clinicians that work with us to be able to work through empathy more. You know, one of the things that keeps me up at night is there's not enough of us to do these all these critical skills and there's not enough of us to train every clinician. <laughs> and so leveraging technology to be able to create models that for instance can do an AR or VR uh, augmented or virtual reality training in this way is really powerful to being able to help ourselves know that we're changing the field and also not burning ourselves out because we tend to say yes to everything. Can I ask one more thing? Sure, yeah. Ahead. One of the things I love to do and I'm very invested in is opioid conversion calculations. And I am, I swear I've moved beyond my abacus, but it just seems to me these online calculators, people turn off their brain and their clinical judgment and some number pops up and they just, they just run with it. So how can we build in or remind people, please don't disengage your brain just because technology is helping you here. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, that is my experience as well, sadly. Um, I will say your book has made massive strides in terms of changing that, I think, and um, certainly bought and recommended copies to all of the hospitals at my local hospital for, for that reason. Um, I, I think that there are ways to do this, for instance, in the prompting behavior, right? So for instance, take the simple example that I gave of bowel movement. I didn't in that moment um, just insert something that says they do or don't have a bowel movement because no one's ever gonna read that, right? It's like pulling in the medication list. No clinician actually goes and looks at that to make sure that it's right. I mean, maybe some do, but it's the rare person that actually goes line by line to think about and analyze that. So I think the best way to engage people around this is to incentivize behaviors or to be able to prompt them to do something in response to something. So i.e. there is no bowel movement charted, but we all know that not every bowel movement gets charted in, in Epic. Yeah, it's just the reality of the world. And so being able to prompt the clinician to re-engage their brain to say, hey, we don't have a record of this, but did you ask the patient if there's something different? I, I wonder if there's tools like that in the opioid space where you can craft, someone like you when could craft rules or parameters to be like, whoa, this, this seems like uh, it might be a little bit outside the bounds and then to prompt the clinician to really engage with, with those, those tools. Good. It's be a challenge lovely. to do well, but can be done. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting part, I think, of, you know, we don't want to be on autopilot, right? Because I think with palliative care, that's the whole relationship part, right? And um, thinking about that. But I think you're right of having people think about different things or, you know, I, where I thought, Lynn, you were going to go was, you know, hey, these medications interact with each other. Have you thought about that? Or, um, you know, you as a palliative care clinician, you're about to add this, you know, are you thinking of, an, of doing an EKG because they have that? I mean, that would be something that I think would be helpful that you're, you know, because I, I think it's a, it's an interesting part of, um, again, what the technology part of this, you know, is. And, and as you said, to help us rather than just to switch it over. But I think in my mind, you know, it's, it's funny as you're talking, I think of the technology for 
charting and obviously I've been so scarred by it that, you know, I'm thinking about like Epic to make sure I'm doing my billing right, right? Yeah. And, and the way that billing and coding is there's no prompting because we're supposed to do it. And you're just like, seriously, there's gotta be a better way to sort of say what else is the rest of my team billing like, right? So that we don't, we haven't had a quality assurance discussion with our biller in two years. And, you know, I want to know, you know, because I'm not there as often, you know, what are we doing? But so I think yeah. those are the things. But I think your part about education is also interesting because it could be that what you're saying is we could, you know, say, okay, we're going to do goals of care conversation. Well, wouldn't it also be cool that we become really aware um, because we don't say it, but it's really important. So like when I'm teaching goals of care, if I'm teaching to nurses, I need to know are they registered nurses or are they nurse practitioners, CNSs? Two different languages that they're allowed to use. And that is by scope of practice. So sort of thinking about how does that happen? And I think, you know, Lynn and I are working on this project where we're trying to think about common competencies, as you will. And one of the conversations that we've had, and I feel very strongly like this interdisciplinary team, and I was said, told at some point, not in this group, but in a different work group, oh, well, you can't have chaplains and social workers assess pain. I'm like, absolutely you can. They might not treat the pain, but they might do better than some of our other colleagues, right? Yes. So what's the AI around some of that? So, I mean, when you're talking, you're, there's a lot of exciting things that I imagine, like you must just have this whole list somewhere. I don't know, you might not do lists because that's, that's an analog thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere digitally about these- Oh my gosh, things. no, pen, I still carry pens around. Oh, uh, okay. there's, there's something real about that. Uh, so many thoughts, so many thoughts. Um, I guess one of the thoughts that I, I really have around this firstly is that I imagine technology when used well, allowing us to connect more deeply, right? So I agree that like, we haven't hit that yet. Um, but I would like to, offload people's brain and let the computer do the dumb things, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that we do that takes up time and effort and cognitive load that we could be using that time to be able to spend an extra few minutes connecting with patients and families. And that, that I think is really, when we hit that right, like we will make things a lot better. I don't know what, what apps people love that they're listening to, but they probably can think about one or two apps that makes their lives easier, right? Um, whether it's a shopping app or like, uh, I, I'm blanking on any, or even navigating, right? Like map, Google Maps or anything like that, that makes your life truly easier. If we can come up with the equivalent of that in our space, then I think it does allow us to be able to, to let go of that and focus on the patient and family in front of us. So I hope that we can get there for sure. It's going to take a little bit more time. Um, Are there anything yeah, else that, I will... that keeps you up? Oh, at... sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. So two, th two thoughts. One is just a last thought from my other piece, which is, you know, one of the things that we're doing around some of these um, trainings is we're actually pivoting because of COVID, but we planned this beforehand for a blended learning modules for advanced communication training series, which is based on the serious illness conversation guide. And 
now that we're doing some online module training for this, right, we can branch people into different skill levels based on their discipline or based on their scope of practice, right? And so there's one piece where we get to talking about prognosis where we split the class virtually into different modules. We may each go through similar topics, but rec recognizing that there's different pieces of that that you can't do in a life training that, that nurses versus NPs have different scopes and different abilities to engage with those pieces. Um, so I'm really excited truthfully about our own efforts within those um, technology education pieces. What keeps me up at night is um, wanting more, more people that are cross-trained in technology and palliative care. I think there's a real need. And I think that um, I've been talking about this with other folks in the field around trying to think about what is, for instance, another year of clinical training look like for people, um, you know, and I know, I know doctor training well, because that's, that's where I came from, right? But like another like extra year of fellowship around clinical informatics for palliative care um, or an area of focus for training programs as I mentioned, our lives are becoming increasingly reliant on technology and our fields can't stay in a bubble of saying, oh, Excel works for us, we're just gonna stay there. Like we, we have to continue to innovate to stay ahead of the curve and to be able to use technology to our benefit. Hmm. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, and then what's gonna have to happen is you have this younger generation that comes into it and then we're gonna have to train up mid yeah. people, right? Um, and so that's always kind of a, challenge. Um, you've said a lot of things that you think would make things better. Anything else that you kind of want us to focus on in terms of like these are students who you're kind of saying, giving them ideas of where to move into the future? Uh, I think, you know, the most important thing as I think about it is being curious um, and dreaming big on some of these things, particularly in the technology space. Uh, there's a lot of tech out there and some of it's good and some of it's bad, truthfully. And um, but I think unless we engage young creative minds in this space, that it becomes really easy for us to continue plodding along doing the same things that we've always done, the same ways that we've always done them. And um, while I am not as technologically facile as some of the younger generations, uh, I think it's fascinating to talk to them and learn from them. And so I invite folks to always like, bring those kind of wacky, crazy ideas that I might think are like, wow, we will never get there. But I think those big dreams help us to be able to innovate and have something to aim for in this space for the future. Um, it's, it's really important for, for our growth, for our ability to continue to stay engaged and for us to be able to take the best care of patients and families. Right, well, that's been amazing. Anything else that you wanna say to our uh, students about which they should be thinking about the future or them starting off? Oh, well, if you're still listening, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, and certainly um, it's been honestly just such a pleasure to be able to think about these things with you guys. It's, um, it's really fun for me. And I, I look very much look forward to, to your students' future because um, we need good leaders. We need good innovators in this space. Um, it's deeply important. Wow. Well, thank thank you, you, Matt. I mean, I, I think it's so important to hear from you because I just think that you have been an innovator in this. And so for our students to understand that if you, we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, we wouldn't 
have included Matt in it because technology hadn't really come of age to be as important in palliative care. Um, so thank you so much for your time and for your thoughts. And um, if you think of anything else, please let us know, but we are so appreciative for your time today. Thank you, Dr. Gonzalez. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.